Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. We're recording this episode on Thursday, June 4th. The U.S. military is in the streets of D.C. and the justices are still working from home. We got a bunch of opinions to break down for you all, including in the closely watched case over Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight and Management Board. We're also going to talk about what's coming for the rest of the term. But let's start off with the five opinions we got on Monday, Kimberly. What happened in the Puerto Rico case? In a unanimous decision by Justice Breyer, the court upheld the oversight board responsible for dealing with Puerto Rico's multi-billion dollar debt crisis, saying that the board was properly appointed under the Constitution. Bondholders had challenged the board, saying that under the Constitution's appointments clause, the board members needed to go through the Senate confirmation process. All right, so what does this all mean? I know there are a lot of interested parties in this case, and this was from way back in October, and it was a big argument. We've been all waiting for it for a while, so what's going on here? Yeah, this was one of the cases that we had expected really early in the term, um, but we still haven't gotten it yet. Um, But this case actually goes back to 2016 when Congress enacted the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, also known as PROMESA, which allows Puerto Rico and its entities to file for federal bankruptcy protection. Now, the act created a management board to oversee the effort that said that the president could appoint its seven members without Senate confirmation. Now, unhappy with how the board was dealing with the debt, several creditors, including a hedge fund and a labor union, challenged its structure, and the justices unanimously rejected that challenge. A ruling going the other way would have upended the board's years-long work and Puerto Rico's efforts to get back out from under the debt. All right. So why is it that the court rejected the creditors' arguments here? Well, the court said um, that the appointments clause, which applies to officers of the United States, does apply to some officers with powers and duties related to Puerto Rico. But it said there was a harder question here of whether the board is specifically covered under the clause. And the court concluded that the board here wasn't covered because it engages in primary local duties as opposed to federal ones. All right. And so even though this wasn't a unanimous opinion, there were a couple separate opinions, right? That's right. So um, we got a concurrence from both Thomas and Sotomayor. So Thomas said the court had reached the right conclusion, but with the wrong reasoning. And importantly, he pointed out that the court didn't consider the original public meaning of quote, officers of the United States. So again, Thomas coming out with a strong originalism bend. Yeah. And what about Sotomayor? Well, she wrote an interesting opinion. She questioned the logic of the ruling, given that Puerto Rico um, is autonomous. She said that board members were tasked with determining the financial fate of the territory. And she said that she was skeptical uh, that the Constitution really wanted this kind of freewheeling exercise of control um, without a lot of accountability. All right. And so before we move on to the next case, this decision was also notable for what it didn't address, what are called these insular cases, which have laid the foundation for treating Puerto Rico as a territory differently from the states. And we actually talked about that on our episode way back in October with our guest at the time, Jessica Mendez Kohlberg, who argued in this case on behalf of a labor union for the justices to overturn these cases. Since the beginning, we've been uh, requesting for the insular cases to be overruled because they the, the 
quality, the reasoning uh, of the court is based on purely racial considerations. Kimberly, what did you make of the court bypassing this issue of these insular cases? Well, I think I'm going to step back first and talk a little bit about the insular cases. cases. These cases go back to the early 1900s um, when the United States was trying to figure out how to deal with newly acquired territories that the United States had gained in the Spanish-American War. And as you mentioned, the result has been that while residents of unincorporated territories like Puerto Rico do enjoy status as citizens, they do not have the same constitutional protections as those of us on the mainland. Um, Now, the court, as you mentioned, did not address the issue, saying that they didn't have to go into it. All right. So that was probably the biggest case that we got this week out of the five, and it was unanimous. But the court on Monday also threw down, sort of, in a 5-4 decision. Right, Kimberly? That's right. This was in, of course, the heated case of Thol versus U.S. Bank um, involving ERISA, something that gets everybody really... That's a scorcher. Gets everybody's cockles up. Um, so ERISA, of course, is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Ah, okay. So here, James Thol and Sherry Smith, who are members of U.S. Bank's pension, uh, sued in a proposed class action against the bank and others for violating ERISA's duties of loyalty and prudence by investing poorly uh, the plan's assets. And they said they, they had lost about $750 million um, under the decisions of the bank. Wow. So what did the court say? So the justices said that those petitioners couldn't actually bring the case in the first place. So in opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, joined by the rest of the court's Republican appointees, the court focused on the fact that the issue here was a, quote, defined benefit plan and not a defined contribution plan, meaning that the plans are given out on fixed payments each month and they don't depend on the fiduciary's particular investment decisions. So because they're receiving their full pension funds and will continue to do so no matter how the case turns out, Kavanaugh said they lacked standing to do in the first place. And what's the dissent's problem with that? Well, the dissent, um, written by Justice Sotomayor, says that the decision prevents millions of petitioners from enforcing their rights to prudent and loyal management of their retirement funds. And she said the court, quote, determines that pensioners may not bring federal lawsuits or stop to cure retirement plan mismanagement until their pensions are on the verge of default. All right. So, We have in this case uh, another example of how even a seemingly dry topic like standing to bring a suit can actually bring out some of the ideological divisions on the court. Yeah, but now we're going to hear from our ERISA lawyers about how we call ERISA dry, so... Well, no, I was talking about the topic of standing. Justice Ginsburg's getting upset as she's listening to this. Wow. But um, we should probably move on. We also had a couple of immigration and criminal cases that split the court seven to two. Tell us about these, Jordan. Sure. So these are both pretty technical cases, but I'll try to summarize the gist of them. Justice Kavanaugh wrote for the court in Nasrallah against Barr, that's the immigration case, holding that federal courts can review a non-citizen's factual challenge to an order denying relief under the UN Convention Against Torture. And so under federal law, non-citizens are protected from deportation to countries where they'll likely face torture. So the court's decision holding that federal courts can review these claims cleared up the power of courts to review administrative findings under the immigration laws. And that was over dissent from Justices Thomas and Alito. And we saw the same lineup in the criminal case, right? 
That's right. So in this one, Bannister against Davis, we had Justice Kagan writing for the court, again, in a super technical case. And this is in the post-conviction appeals context. And the question there was whether Rule 59E motions under the federal rules of civil procedure <laughs> count as second or successive habeas corpus petitions. Yeah, well, we all totally understand what that <laughs> means. So, um, But just in case people need a little refresher, you know, why don't you just explain it a little bit? Okay, sure. So super technical, like I said. So a little bit of background, the laws surrounding habeas corpus have strict limitations on what types of claims prisoners can bring. And so among those limitations is that they usually can't bring second or successive applications. The general rule is they get one shot to make their claim. But on the other hand here, you have the purpose of these 59E motions are to alter or amend judgments, meaning that they can be used to try to get judges to correct errors in their decisions before they go up on appeal. And so what happened here was the Fifth Circuit said what Bannister was calling his 59E motion, which was filed after his first habeas corpus petition was denied, was really just another habeas corpus petition in disguise, and so it was rejected. So the question here, which had split the lower courts, was whether these 59E motions, if they're timely filed, should be considered second or successive habeas applications that would automatically get rejected by the courts or not. And I know this is an issue that we're all are like pressing on our minds. So please tell us, are they or are they not? They're not. So Kagan said in her opinion that uh, these 59E motions shouldn't be treated that way as second or successive habeas applications. Uh, she noted that these motions could promote efficiency in the court system by letting judges correct any mistakes before a case goes up on appeal. And so again, just as in the immigration case we were just talking about, we had Alito and Thomas dissenting here, agreeing with the Fifth Circuit and arguing that now prisoners will be incentivized to file meritless motions that are going to, in their view, overburden the system, or at least that that's something that could happen, they're saying. All right, so we got just one more opinion. The court is clearing off its decks. So uh, this was an arbitration case involving GE. In a unanimous opinion by Justice Thomas, the court said that non-parties to foreign arbitration agreements can still enforce them under an international treaty so long as they can show some kind of nexus to the parties who actually signed it. Now, this brings international arbitration law in line with domestic arbitration law, and it's the latest example of the court's pattern of upholding arbitration pacts generally. The case is also a win for GE and its subsidiary here, which wanted to compel arbitration of a dispute, even though it wasn't technically a party to the contract. All right, so that's the five cases from this week. And so now we have 20 opinions left for the term, with more coming on Monday, June 8th. So Kimberly, what do these latest opinions tell us about how some of the bigger ones we're waiting for might come down? Well, so to remind our, our listeners, the court tries to give each justice roughly the same number of opinions to write, and they try to make sure that each justice gets an argument to write from each sitting to kind of spread out the workload. Mm -hmm. Two of the biggest cases this term are from October and November. In October, it's the Title VII cases over whether LGBT workers are protected by federal and anti-discrimination laws. And in November was the DACA case. All right. So what do we think is going to happen with these? Well, for the Title VII cases, we have Roberts, Gin Ginsburg, and Kavanaugh, who haven't written an opinion for the October sitting. So it seems unlikely that Roberts would assign Kavanaugh, the junior justice, to write such a big case, though it's not totally unheard of. 
But it probably comes down to Roberts or Ginsburg or maybe even both. This is one that we've discussed before where, based on his questioning at the argument, Justice Gorsuch could be the swing vote here, and we'll have to see. Um, but just to be clear, there are really two different issues in these Title VII cases, which could generate different opinions and different outcomes. So there are the consolidated cases in Bostock and Zarda asking whether discrimination against an employee because of sexual orientation is prohibited under federal anti-discrimination laws. And then there's RG and GR funeral homes asking whether Title VII protects transgender workers. So um, there is a possibility that these two cases come out a little bit differently. And so what about DACA? Well, that one's even easier, trying to read the tea leaves on who's going to write it. Uh, the only person remaining for the November sitting is Chief Justice Roberts. So this one is probably all his, although that's not really a surprise. He tends to keep the biggest ones for himself. Um, but that means that it's not an easy call as to which way it's going to go. And... Um, keeping us right on the edge. Right. All right. So we're caught up on the opinions and some of what's coming for the rest of the term. Uh, before we go, I'll just note that we're still waiting on action from the court in pending petitions on both the Second Amendment and on qualified immunity. And qualified immunity, of course, being the legal rule that we talked about a couple episodes ago that shields the police from civil liability. And of course, it's an issue that's taken on even more significance since the death of George Floyd in Minnesota and protests and police violence across the country. So we'll see on Monday morning in the orders list if the court decides to take up either of those issues. And until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.